We're going to uh, begin with uh, one of our topical sermons today. So it'll be a, a bit of a uh, hodgepodge, but I'm hoping you'll be able to find it. Uh, mostly uh, it is based on uh, the communion this morning. <laughs> it's on grace. It's on grace. Let's open the prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to gather together as your people. We ask your blessing upon us this morning. We ask for open hearts, open minds, open ears. And Lord God, you might impress us with the importance of what you've called us to. Thank you, Lord God, for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you can see, the, uh, the topic this morning is drifting away based on Hebrews. Now, wait a minute, we're in, we're in Ephesians. Uh, I'll, I'll sprinkle it with some Ephesians just to keep us you know, online, on track. Uh, but I, I want to begin with uh, Hebrews uh, 2.1. You'll see it up there on uh, the board. Um, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. A sailboat will drift with the wind. You'll see a boat up on the the board, drifting. A sailboat would drift with the wind and the tide even when the sails are down. You need to drop anchor if you want to stay put. This series of sermons that we're going to give you is based on the impact of the culture on us. How often do we take the culture and bring it into the church with us? And how can we do something about that? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. You need to drop anchor if you're going to stay put. And the culture, this world, it's the same word. The culture and this world has winds and tides. It never, never stops moving. And it never stops pushing against us to go with the flow. It never stops pushing us to go with the flow. If we don't drop anchor, we can drift. We can be tossed about by every wind of teaching and drift with the tides. But how do we drop anchor? How do we drop anchor? How do we stand firm in a world that's always pushing the boundaries? We know that it's by God's grace alone that we are saved. And it's by God's grace alone that we are sustained. And it's by God's grace alone that we will persevere to the end. And yet there are things that believers can do to stand firm. There are things we can do to stand firm. We can make regular use of the means of grace that God has provided, and we can intentionally exercise our faith in Christ. But we need to work at them. We actually need to work at those things. God grants us grace, but we must lay hold of it. God grants us faith, but we must exercise it. What then can make us ignore grace? What can weaken our faith in Christ? Current issues and crises in the world constantly provoke fear and provoke doubt. They can make us take our eyes off our real enemy, which is Satan. And they can make us take our eyes off Christ, who has judged him and is casting him out through us. If we want to keep our eyes on Christ, we need to learn to combat fear and doubt. We need to learn to combat fear and doubt. How? With faith and grace. (laughs) Uh, That's the antidote. Why? Because as we lose sight of Christ, we forget who we are and what we've been called to. And as we ignore the means of grace, we weigh anchor and we drift. The means of grace are familiar, even if that phrase isn't for you. Scripture, prayer, meditation, sermons, Worship, sacraments, and fellowship. 
Those are on your handout, so you don't have to write quickly. If you look on the back, you'll see them all listed there. They remind us that God is always at work in our circumstances, and he is always at work in us. And even when we can't see it, and that's even when we don't expect it. Knowing that and believing that, you have to know that, you have to believe that, and rely on that. If you do that, it's part of how we stand firm. That's part of how we stand firm and avoid drifting away. Our confidence in the love of God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit plants our feet firmly on the rock so that we will not be moved. The means of grace sustain us in the storm, just as you see on the board. Satan, our enemy, and our accuser is always at work to move us off the mark and to oppose us, even when we can't see it, even when we don't expect it. Knowing that and watching for it also helps us to stand firm. His aim is to get us to move just one degree, one small step away from the narrow path. Because if he can do that, he can move us a mile. So here's the rest of that Hebrews passage. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we, we believers, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And yet we do, often. Is the gospel truth so ingrained in you? Is it so much the foundation of your life? Is it so much the hope of your soul that you won't be persuaded against it or deceived into betraying Christ or ignoring your call to follow him? Take a moment to think about that. This life that you and I are living on this earth, the way that we live it, the purpose for living it, depends on answering those questions honestly. Is the gospel truth so ingrained in you, so much the foundation of your life, so much the hope of your soul that you won't be persuaded against it or deceived by devils and men into betraying Christ or ignoring your calling? Is the gospel truth, the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit right now, in this moment, the joy of your heart? Is it why you delight to get out of bed? I know, none of us delight to get out of bed. But is it why you get out of bed in the morning, despite the pain and struggles, despite the distractions and turmoil, the opposition and disappointments, the opportunities and temptations, all the things that might tempt you to leave that narrow path? And if you're hesitant to say yes to such questions, <laughs> you're not alone. You are not alone, as David mentioned this morning. You join every Christian who ever lived and whoever struggled to faithfully follow Christ. You join Peter and Paul. You join Calvin and Luther. You join Spurgeon and Piper. You join Mary and Martha. The best among us struggle with Christ's call in our life. The best among us struggle with it. Satan counts on that. <laughs> Satan counts on that. He uses it to convince us that we're hypocrites, to mislead and misguide us, to persuade us to walk our own path, to find our own joy and satisfaction in this life, to put the gospel on hold just for a day or a month or a year. He wants to silence us by raising doubts and by dividing us. He grabs our attention with fear and violence, fear of the pandemic, 
fear of government corruption and incompetence, fear of inflation, and now the horror of war, hoping to keep us from our calling. Let me encourage you this morning. Don't do that. Don't do that. This is the time. This is the place to embrace that calling. We were born for such a day as this. God has called us at such a time as this. Now, what we need to be aware of are the tactics that Satan uses. That's what I want to get through to you this morning, if I can, um, so that you can defend yourself against these attacks by Satan, these misguided snares that it lays in front of us. So if you recognize them, you're less likely to step into them. Primarily, he uses fear, deception, and our own sinful desires. He gets us to fear the wrong things, to believe the wrong things, and desire the wrong things. We have a built-in desire to satisfy ourselves without considering the cost. So you'll never guess what Satan does for us. He tries to blind us to the danger and the cost of sin. Oh, no, it won't have that consequence. Oh, no, no one else will know. Oh, no, don't worry about it. In the scheme of things, it doesn't matter at all. He deceives us about it as if to minimize what Christ died for. If sin wasn't that important, why did Christ go to the cross for us? Whenever you look lightly upon sin, you are looking lightly upon the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And then Satan makes our desires feel an awful lot like needs. I want that. No, no, I need that. And day in and day out, we are inundated with all those messages that tell us, oh, no, this is a basic need for you. You've got to satisfy this need. You're important. You deserve it. By contrast, by contrast, well, here's the gospel. God justifies us in his sight. God justifies us in his sight. He declares us righteous through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. We sang about that this morning. Christ died in our place to pay for our sins in order to satisfy God's justice and reconcile us to God. Grace alone is the cause of our salvation. Christ alone is able to save us. And faith alone is how we receive that gift of salvation which abides in Christ. That's the gospel. By contrast, Satan gets us to justify our sins to ourselves. Doesn't he? Oh, no, that's not a sin. That's just an inclination. Oh, no, that's not just a sin. It's just an observation. Oh, no, that's not... We try to justify our sins to ourselves by convincing us. This is what Satan does. By convincing us that satisfying our fleshly desire isn't as bad as God makes it out to be. Don't take it so seriously. Satan supplies us with cultural arguments to convince us that sin is normal. Everybody does it, so don't worry so much about it. Instead of finding our identity and our satisfaction in Christ, Satan convinces us to find it in ourselves or in what we own or in what we do. He gives us a plausible way to exalt ourselves instead of Christ, to see our own image in the mirror instead of Christ's image in us. If you feel like you're getting beaten up, please don't. Uh, there's a triage kit in your bulletin. It's called Means of Grace. And, you know, if you have these, you know, fears and doubts and so go to the book of Psalms. Okay, so that's in there. So, you know, make sure you take that out and put it in your Bible when you go home. Or you could do it now. Instead of finding our identity and satisfaction in Christ, Satan convinces us to find it in ourselves and what we own, etc. Simply put, simply put, Satan finds popular ways 
socially acceptable ways to find our identity in anything but Christ. He tempts us to find it in our tribe, in our tongue, in our people, or in our nation, in the externals that are common to both the kingdom of darkness and also the kingdom of light, rather than to find it in the things that distinguish the one kingdom from the other. All those things are externals. You can't change them. You were born into them. You, you were born with them. Okay, So don't think that your identity is based on any of those. It's not. But culture, the world, will try to convince you they are. Don't fall for the line. In other words, Satan gets us to take our eyes off Christ. He gets us to take our hearts off Christ. So we'll serve his interests rather than Christ's. So how does he do that? Satan gets us to change our values. The importance we assign to various things in our life. If he can get us to change what we believe is most important, we'll stop following Christ consistently. In our Christian walk, we need constant reminders of who we are in Christ and what the proper order is in our relationships, even with God. We've been examining those in our study in Ephesians, haven't we? Heard a lot about that last week. Our priorities should be God first. We'll put a graphic up on the board for you. Then spouse, then kids, then work, then church, then everything else. The mistake we make is to separate these things instead of connecting them. Our relationship with God must be the foundation of our marriage and parenting. It must be the motivation for our labors at home and in the workplace. It must be what attracts us to other believers and forms the basis for our fellowship. God. It should permeate. Your relationship with God should permeate. Your knowledge of God should permeate everything you do. If you separate them out, you got problems. Why is that? Because you're going to try to find a spot in your calendar to schedule God. Instead of God being everywhere in your calendar. Oh. These are not separate things. They're one thing. We worship God in each of them and we celebrate Christ in each of them. We call upon the Spirit of God to work in us so that we may glorify God in each one and express the grace of God in each one as well. If Satan can get us to change our response to the gospel truth, not the gospel truth, our response to the gospel truth, and set it aside just for now or in this instance, he wins the skirmish. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That salvation is contained in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How will we escape if we give it a lower priority in our life? If we think of it as less important just for now, just in this moment. Oh, we wouldn't deny the gospel, of course. We wouldn't abandon or disbelieve it. We just put it a little lower on the list for today. We'd let it have a little less influence on us. We'd let other things take priority. Maybe we'll turn to it when we have a major decision to make. But for now, in this moment, we ignore it. Satan won't ask us to accept any obvious departure from God's truth. He works by increments, by tiny changes to get us a bit off course. The verse in Hebrews warns us against drifting away from the gospel. That means there's a set course to navigate. 
and we can drift away from that course. Satan doesn't want it to be obvious that we're drifting away. <laughs> or we'll correct our course and evade his trap. Oh. Instead, he gets us to change our course a degree at a time. We can still see true north. We can still see it. We can still see it until we can't see it anymore. And we've drifted away and lost our way. The Canadian Mounties cleared out the convoy protest by making the folks there take one step back. Just one step. And then they waited till the crowd settled down and accepted the new line. After all, it was only one step. Insignificant, really. But then they got them to take another step back and waited. And then they did it again and again till the crowd finally drifted away. That's how Satan works with us. Just a scotch. This culture from top to bottom is pushing against God's truth to get us to accept a new normal. Bit by bit. To think that each change is insignificant, inconsequential in the scheme of things. But the fact is, if we accept only one thing that departs from God's eternal truth, Satan's tactic has worked. Next time will take us another step back from God's eternal truth, and then again, and again, and again. Satan is not trying to change the truth. His tactic is to get us to take the truth less seriously. To compromise our response to it step by step until it has little, if any, impact on our life, until we finally drift away. He'll let us hold on to that promised land ahead, that heaven that we hope in, that one that we sang about this morning, that day on which we'll see Christ face to face. Why will he let us have that? Because his aim is to make us ineffective in the work of Christ today. Here. His aim is to get our eyes off Christ for now, to get us to forget that we're in a war and that every day is a battle and that he's our enemy. So let me ask another awkward question. How successful is this tactic in your life so far? been working for me. <laughs> Just today, I can devote myself to a Sunday, uh, you know, and then comes Monday, and well, it's Monday. Ooh, new week. If salvation is by grace alone, and it is, if sanctification or becoming more and more Christ-like is also by grace alone, and it is, then what would happen, what has been happening, if we abandon the means of grace that God has provided to sustain us in this world? How strong would our faith be? How effective would our shield be if we don't feed our faith and strengthen it by exercising it? It will be a weak faith, unable to deflect Satan's fiery darts. Without the whole armor of God, we are vulnerable to Satan's attacks. You need the whole armor of God, not one piece, not a couple of them. You need the whole armor of God. We're vulnerable to Satan's attacks if we don't have on that whole armor. And our faith will grow weak. It will. That's just the way things are. Now, you know your faith is weak if you hear Satan whispering in your ear right now that you're not really serious about Christ. <laughs> you're not a true believer. You're a faker and a fraud. He'll try to convince you that when you serve your spouse, when you serve your children, when you serve your ailing parent, even a neighbor or a co-worker, that somehow it's separate from serving Christ. 
that every moment you care for them is at the expense of your religious duties. So you beat yourself up for not praying more and reading more and worshiping more and yada, yada, yada. Here's the truth. As you did it for one of the least of these, you did it for me. Do all things as to the Lord, not separate from the Lord. Do all things as to the Lord. The ways in which you serve the body and serve others for his sake are grace-filled. They are acts of mercy. They are acts of love. They are acts of worship. And they don't go unnoticed by the Lord. So stop beating yourself up. Satan whispers are lies. His whispers are lies because his intent is to put the burden on you that belongs on Christ. Cast all your burdens on Christ, 1 Peter 5, 7. Do you believe it? Do you do it? How? How do you cast your burdens on Christ? That's going to involve some thought. That's going to involve some study. That's going to involve some thinking. That's going to involve looking at your life. How can I give this over to Christ? It feels like my burden. It weighs on me like God's burden. How do I toss that onto Christ? I don't know how to do that. And that's why God has provided the means of grace. Satan's fiery darts will find their mark only if you drop your shield of faith. Keep the means of grace high on your list of priorities each day. The means of grace are not duties or works. <laughs> That's another one of Satan's lies. Don't fall for that. The means of grace are not duties and they are not works. They're gifts. They're provided by God to impart his grace to you. His grace works in you as a sovereign agent. This is something that Jonathan Edwards wrote a long time ago. He says, grace works in you as a sovereign agent to activate your new nature, to renew your faculties, and to provoke good deeds. Oh, so it's not just you know, a description of something God did. It's actually something that is in me. Yeah, yeah it is. God's grace is in you by the Spirit of God. That's why he was given to you. Now, are you exercising that grace? Are you laying hold of that grace that's available to you? You're, is that a foreign language? <laughs> I mean, it sounds really cool, but I don't know how to do that. Uh, well, welcome to the Christian walk. Is learning how to do that over time. The means of grace expose and they thwart Satan's snares. They're practical steps you can take to buttress God's truth in your mind and in your heart. And they're how you put on the armor of God. They are how you put on the armor of God. Those seven things are how you put on the armor of God. You can talk about the armor all you want, but if you don't put it on, what good is it? It's not supposed to be hanging in a closet gathering dust. And these means of grace are essential to your faith. They're not niceties. They are necessities. They are essential to your faith. In 1740, Jonathan Edwards wrote this. As long as we are in the world, we are, the enemy, we are in the enemy's country. And therefore, watch and pray always. Why? So that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that are coming at you, all these cultural waves and tides, and to stand before the Son of Man. Though God stands ready to protect his people, he expects great care and labor by all. 
Oh, I thought it was all by grace and I don't have to do anything. No, no, no. He expects great labor by all and that we should put on the whole armor of God so that we may stand in the evil day. God has appointed this whole life as a state of labor. All of it, like a race or a battle. Is that what you think when you get up in the morning? Maybe you should begin. I got a battle lying ahead of me today. I better prepare myself for it. I better recognize those snares when they get laid in front of me. I better see them for what they are. I better know how Satan works. Satan is not only, I'm sorry, you are called to be on guard duty, on guard duty in prayer, armed and armored, ready to warn your fellow saints of any impending danger from without or within interceding for them, as we heard in the prayer this morning, for them before the throne of God. This requires vigilance, and it requires wakefulness for them. Oh, and by the way, for yourself. This is a package deal. This is a community effort. Satan is not only our enemy and our accuser, but he's the tester of our faith. Have I got faith in Christ? And Satan goes, ooh, 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 test, test, surprise quiz. The Spirit brought Jesus into the desert to be tested by him. Why? To prepare Jesus for the trials that lay ahead. If our Lord Jesus was not exempt from testing, then neither are we. We must gird ourselves each day for that day's battle and for that day's testing. This is like a different way of looking at life. Yeah, I know. We can't avoid the tester, but we can avoid his snares. We have both private and public means of grace. So let's talk about these means of grace. They relate to the parts of the armor of God in Ephesians 6. So this is like a prequel. They work together each, feeding the other to ensure we're ready to do battle offensively and defensively. They each work together, feeding each other, the public and the private. You make use of the private means of grace, you bring it into the public means of grace. When we're saying this morning, you're bringing what your studies were this week, what your needs were this week, what your prayers were this week, and you're bringing it into the corporate environment. And then you come here and you get fed, and you take what you have learned here and what you've received here, and you take it back into your private means of grace and let it feed into those and guide those and strengthen those. They work together, each feeding the other, to ensure we're ready to do battle offensively and defensively. So what are these private ones? Things that we actively do on our own. Reading and studying the Word of God. Prayer. Seeking out and drawing near to God. Communing with Him. I can commune with God? (laughs) It's why He made you. Yes. Meditation. This is not mere contemplation. Golly gee, I wonder what that means. No, that's not what we mean by meditation. Meditation is thinking deeply about the practical application of Scripture to our life and our circumstances. Meditation, thinking deeply about the practical application of Scripture to our life and circumstances. You did that this morning at communion. You examined yourself. You were thinking about the practical application of the truth of that communion table to the life that you're living. Oh. Public things we actively participate in together. Proclamation of the word, speaking and hearing. That's what I'm doing. That's what you're doing. Assembling for worship. It's a team effort. The ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Christian fellowship, speaking to one another about the things of God and caring for one another in the love of Christ. Fellowship. Fellowship. Corporate prayer for the body of Christ. 
These are things we intentionally do. We choose to do them. We fight to do them. Wrestling with the devil, the flesh, and the world to follow Christ faithfully. It's a struggle. It's a battle. You have to choose to wage the battle. You have to choose to get engaged on the field of battle. That's a choice you make each day. Sometimes we get dragged into it unwillingly. <laughs> and we may not be ready for it on that day. But it would be better if we prepped ourselves for the things ahead. These are things we intentionally do and fight to do. If it takes everything we've got just to get here on a Sunday morning, and I know for some of you this morning, it was a struggle just to get here. If you've struggled to do that and to gather with the saints and you're here, that's huge. That's huge. This right here, what we're doing, is a means of grace to you. Let us feed you. Let us care for you. Let us minister to you. Let us comfort you. We are one body in Jesus Christ with one spirit and one heart beating among us. Do you believe that? These are things we are asked to believe by God's word. Again, the means of grace are not duties or works. They're not one more thing to do or one more thing to feel guilty about because you're not doing them. See the means of grace as a gift from God and treasure them. They'll stop being a chore and become a delight. It depends on how you look at them. Remember, God first. Seek his kingdom first, and all these other things will come to you. Matthew 6.33, good verse to memorize. The means of grace give us the strength and the conviction we need to stand firm. They tie us to Christ, who is our anchor in the storm. They keep us from drifting away. Preaching the word and hearing the word are powerful means of grace in our contest with the devil. I, I don't know that I've been in a contest with the devil. Oh, yeah, you have. <laughs> Whether you knew it or you didn't know it, oh, yeah. Yeah, you've been in a contest with the devil. Helping us to recognize his lies, that's the means of grace, is helping us to recognize his lies. Our gathering this morning is a lifeline and a means of grace for you. If you limit the private means of grace or you withdraw from the public means, you're cutting loose the anchor. Let me repeat that. If you limit the private means of grace or you withdraw from the public means, you're cutting loose the anchor. Satan's fiery darts will then find their target. He'll get you to deny, doubt, or distort your identity in Christ or to reject God's order in your life, in your home, or in the church. But don't lose heart if that happens. Don't lose heart just because that happens. I, I think David said it this morning. We all fail. Don't lose heart. Christ is willing and able to restore his image in you daily. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's willing every day, every moment to restore you whole to himself If we confess our sins, if we acknowledge them, if we admit them to ourselves so that we can admit them to God, not always easy. God's spirit is ever at work in his people, drawing us near, comforting us and revealing himself to us if we're willing. If we're willing. He's always at the door. As Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He knocks. 
He's not only available, but he initiates the conversation. Whoa. He calls out to us. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Revelation 3.20. He'll have a meal with us and talk to us heart to heart. Don't ask what's on the menu. This is joyful fellowship. This is camaraderie. This is friendship. It is a powerful thing to consider that the Lord of all creation has sought you out for this personal relationship with him. Chew on that for a minute. The creator of the universe called you into fellowship with him. Said, come on, let's go have a cup of coffee together. Let's sit down, have a meal together. Let's share the delights of life together. It's such a threat to Satan that he will do everything he can to keep you from hearing Christ's voice and to stop you from opening that door. That's the profound tension of the Christian life. Jesus Christ actively pursues us. Jesus Christ actively pursues you. He's pursuing you right now in this moment. He actively pursues you. And Satan actively tries to keep us from him. And Satan actively tries to keep us from him. You'll never guess, but it's a battle of good and evil. <laughs> it takes place every morning, every noon, every afternoon, every night, and even into our dreams. This is true not only for the lost, but for believers too. Christ still pursues our heart even after he saves our soul. Christ pursues your heart even after he has saved your soul. We don't need to wait for eternity to have that relationship, but we do need to be open to it. We do need to listen for his voice. We do need to open the door when he knocks. Satan makes a loud racket to distract us. But the means of grace will silence his racket. The means of grace are designed and intended to silence the racket so you can hear the call of Christ. So what do we do? Well, I can't be bothered with those. I haven't got time right now. I don't, you know, man, it's noisy. I just, I, I can't get my thoughts straight. I, get, I don't need, if Christ is calling, I can't hear him in the, in, the, in the midst of the winds and the storm. I just, duh. <laughs> the means of grace remind us of our true identity in Christ and they remind us of God's order in all things. The means of grace quiet our soul. The means of grace quiet our soul. That being true, every snare of Satan involves either identity or order. Every snare of Satan involves either identity or order. When we forget our true identity, we become disorderly. And when we become disorderly, we forget our true identity. Learn to recognize Satan's snares. Here's the proper order. God is creator and we are creature. <laughs> That's both order and identity. Pride blinds us to that order, but grace will restore our sight. That's why you need the means of grace. Put your glasses on. <laughs> Be able to see things clearly again. So cling tightly to the means of grace. They help you cling tightly to Christ. Now, number one, how does Satan tempt us to avoid the private means of grace? 
These are reading, prayer, and meditation. They are designed to make you so familiar with the Word of God, so familiar with the Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, so familiar with the Word of God that it makes you tremble just reading it. Guess what happens when you stop trembling? You stop reading. What's the cure? Start reading. (laughs) This is not tough stuff. (laughs) I spent hours trying to think of this stuff. You know, how does that actually... That's, That's how it works. When you stop trembling, you stop reading. So memorize this verse. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. You want him to look to you? These, these things, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. And then as you pray over God's word and you meditate on it and you consider how it applies to your circumstances and to your heart towards God and the gospel, you never guess what happens. It humbles you <laughs> and it makes you contrite. <laughs> Those are the after effect. Those are the results of using the means of grace. You don't need those before you come to the means of grace. They are the result of using the means of grace. In the process, you are being conformed to the image of Christ in spirit and in truth. You are driven at that point to worship him, to recall who you are in Christ, to recall what he has done for you in particular and what he is doing in you. And at that very moment, you enter into fellowship with Christ. So that's what it is. Yeah. That's how it works. Yep. Oh. So, what does Satan do to keep us from that? Well, here are Satan's primary snares. A, he'll tempt you to waste your time or consume your time with everything else. So there's no time left to read. Or if you read, there's no time left to pray. Or if you pray, there's no time left to meditate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. More about this in two weeks. Great, I'm so looking forward to it. Might be able to get enough bandages by then. B, he'll tempt you to make yourself the focus of whatever you choose instead. He'll tempt you not to do all things as for Christ, but to do all things as for yourself. In other words, he'll tempt you to self-idolatry and to disorderliness. How does that cause you to doubt, deny, or distort your identity in Christ? Well, instead of being a steward of God's time, you spend it as if it were your time. Instead of being a servant of Christ, you act as if you're his equal. Your pride convinces you to make your own choices and to serve your own interests. Those are ever the dangers of the flesh, and Satan is ever whispering in your ear to satisfy it. Don't do that. You'll either serve God using the means of grace he's provided, or you'll serve another master. One or the other. You'll either serve God using the means of grace he's provided or you'll serve another master. And that's a daily choice. The Christian says with Joshua, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Number two, how does Satan tempt us to avoid the public means of grace? These involve coming together for preaching, worship, the sacraments, fellowship, corporate prayer. Well, here's another verse to memorize. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, giving one another strength and hope, conviction, 
And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is that? It's either the day Christ returns, the day he calls you home. The clock is ticking. Satan's primary snares. Dealing with these public means. A, he'll tempt you to isolate yourself from the body of Christ. He will tempt you to isolate yourself from the body of Christ. B, he'll tempt you to criticize the body of Christ in order to justify your isolation and to feed your ego. I am so smart. I am so insightful. I can see everything that's wrong with this church and them elders and them deacons and my fellow believers. And we make ourselves judge of all. How does that cause you to doubt, deny, or distort your identity in Christ? Satan doesn't just attack Christians. <coughs> Individually. He attacks the church. He attacks our families. He attacks our children. He attacks the leaders in the church and the parents in the home by attacking the order in both. He knows that if he can strike the shepherds, the sheep will scatter. So he goes right after whoever is head of the household. He goes right after who's ever hooding up the church. He goes right after whatever leaders there are in the Christian community. His aim is to divide the church by undermining its leaders and tempting us to follow our favorite Apollo, Sir Paul. We drift into hyphenated Christians, Lutheran Christians, Baptist Christians, black Christians, white Christians, American Christians. Scripture is clear. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body without regular infusions of the means of grace. You'll forget that. Without regular infusions of the means of grace, you will forget that we all eat and drink Christ as members of his body. You'll ground your identity in anything but Christ. In ethnicity, nationality, gender, class, education, occupation, wealth, poverty, politics, yada, yada, yada. And hate all others. That's what Satan's trying to get us to do today in this culture, right now. You can see it, can't you? Do you recognize it for what it is? That that's Satan's hand at work, not some incompetent government official? You know who your enemy is. In the past 50 years, we have drifted from civil rights to women's rights, to gay rights, to gender rights, to white privilege, to racial division, step by step. We've drifted from abortion in alleyways to abortion in hospitals, good, to abortion on demand, very bad. From no-fault divorce to civil unions to gay marriage. Those aren't related, those are. Those were the increments. That's how they came about. Again, it's not just about identity. It's also about orderliness. God created an order to the universe at its creation. He created an order in the garden at the birth of mankind. And he created an order in the church at its inception. Step by step, Satan attacks that identity and he attacks that order until we accept and embrace things that would never have been acceptable to us before. Would have been inconceivable to us before. So let me ask an awkward question yet again. Uh, what's the focus of your conversation when you show up at church? How about at home? How about at work? 
Does it center on your fears and on your doubts? Or on your confidence in Christ and reliance on God? What do you focus on when you open up your yap? What do you talk about? What garbage do you spill into everybody else's ears? Or what hope and cleanliness and things that build up do you spill into everybody else's ears? God commands us, do not fear. God commands us, do not doubt. And yet the more we ignore the means of grace, the more we fear and doubt. When Peter doubted as he walked on the water, he began to sink. Christ asked him, why'd you doubt? (laughs) You'll never guess what he did. (laughs) Seemed like the wise thing to do at the time. (laughs) Man's got to recognize his limitations. (laughs) Sorry. Even so, Jesus reached out, he took him by the hand, and he lifted him up. He'll do the same for you. As you turn to him and the means of grace are how you can turn to him. And we can all help one another with that. It says so in Ephesians. I thought we were off Ephesians. We're on his. It's all one thing. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. How do you speak to one another? Does it sound like that? You'll learn how to do that as you make use of the means of grace. This church is a shelter in the storm. Not because we're here, but because Christ is here in his people. Therefore, as you heard of the benediction last week, learn Christ. Learn Christ here. Make him known. Let him be seen among yourselves. As we do that, we stand firm together. And as we stand firm together, we keep one another from drifting away. And therefore, watch over one another. Would you please watch over one another and beware the devil's snares. Know who you are in Christ. And know that we worship an orderly God. May his name be praised forevermore. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the encouragement of your word. We thank you for these means of grace. You've provided us with everything we need for life and godliness. Oh, Lord God, may we make use of it. May we nurture your word in our life. May we seek it out every chance we get. May we be reminded of the truths of Scripture in every instance we come into, every conflict we have, every joy we have, every opportunity we see, that we might withstand the wiles of the devil. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.